Hello and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.iamwomanproject.com.au. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at I Am Woman Project and Facebook. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today we have Megan Bruno, the Oracle of All Information. Megan is a psychotherapist and wellness coach who specializes in helping people change their relationships to themselves. Her work has been featured in Forbes, The Huffington Post, Entrepreneur, Elephant Journal and lots more where her articles have amassed more than 15 million views. Megan believes that we must practice becoming comfortable with discomfort because if we constantly avoid discomfort, we let perfectionism govern our lives. And we only do what we know we can and avoid taking risks or putting ourselves in situations where we feel vulnerable. You see, we can grow our emotional tolerance muscles and make space for the discomfort that occurs with potential growth. We take the power back and can make decisions based on desire rather than fear. Megan shares how we have to learn how to be our own mentor, mentoring ourselves. In other words, learn how to treat ourselves with compassion and respect, how to have expectations and yearn for growth and be able to understand, support and forgive ourselves when these are not met. So now it's time to chill out and enjoy this informative conversation between two women. So welcome, Megan Bruno, to uh, I Am One Project. How are you today? I am wonderful, Catherine. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here too. I have to say, what time is it in New York now? It is 5.16 p.m. Oh, okay. So it's 9.16 a.m. here. So Megan, I thought we were having a bit of a conversation. I thought we better start recording because we're having some juicy conversations. So for our listeners, why don't we uh, start with uh, who is Megan Bruno? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm many things. Um, I'm, I'm sort of now learning how do I describe myself because for a while it was always I'm a psychotherapist or mental health therapist, but I've added some additional titles to my my name over the past few years. Um, you know, I work as well as a wellness coach, uh, a writer, podcast host, um, consultant. So yeah, I mean, I do a bunch of things, but my, my formal education is in um, counseling psychology. So I work as a therapist primarily. Wow. Okay. And we were having, do you want to um, maybe deep dive into a little bit of the conversation we were talking about with um, body image and so forth? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, uh, it's top of mind for me right now because I just came off a Twitter chat with a, an eating disorder treatment center that I do some consulting for. And, uh, you know, this time of year is really challenging for people who 
might be struggling with eating disorder recovery or body image challenges, um, you know, as life is in general, not just the holidays. But um, we were talking earlier about just the the pressure on women to fit a certain ideal and how it really perpetuates this culture of disordered eating that has almost become normalized also through the the wellness industry, um, which you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm a part of, but I also have a lot of conflict around because I think it is at times a euphemism for the diet industry. So yeah, we were just chatting earlier about, um, you know, some of the contributing factors toward eating disorders, body image challenges, um, you know, basically the oppression of, of women <laughs> and men too, actually now they're really on the rise within men. Um, but yeah, that was sort of what we were initially getting yeah. into and, and I look forward to us really exploring today. And, and I, I think too, it's not one of those conversations we have often. I remember um, many moons ago when I was uh, growing up the, with the supermodels, you know, they were super skinny and I remember there was a lot more conversations around anorexia and all of that kind of stuff and body mm-hmm. image, but I don't seem to come across it as much now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I guess it, it, depends on the world that a person is in and if it's relevant to them or not, because certainly, I mean, I'm more immersed in that world and, and really surround myself by recovery focused and body positive media. Um, but you know, it certainly is, it's easy to ignore or to not be aware of the damaging, um, messages that are out there in both in media, um, social media as well, and just our society in terms of uh, this unrealistic, um, unattainable body image ideal that a lot of women and men feel that they have to meet, which is also really um, correlated with perfectionism and trauma and, you know, depression and anxiety and all sorts of challenges, interpersonal relationship problems and whatnot. Um, And I actually specialize in perfectionism, which is not just this uh, seeking perfection, but it's, it's a real fear of uh, vulnerability, fear of uncomfortable feelings. And what we do is we try to um, meet unrealistically high expectations as a way of protecting ourselves from ever feeling um, inadequate or feeling uncomfortable. And an eating disorder is a manifestation basically of perfectionism. Well, when you're talking about vulnerability, what does that mean to you? Because I mean, there's so many different forms of vulnerability and I always look at it as being a form of strength. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You can stand and be vulnerable. And that's one of those lessons I learned this year is to really stand and be vulnerable and not be afraid to stand in your truth. Totally. Well, you know, I mean, um, there is a lot of courage and vulnerability. Really, uh, the most, most courageous form of vulnerability is being able to sit in one's comfort, uncomfortable emotions and, you know, do it anyway, basically, or open up to those um, those feelings of uncertainty and feeling out of control um, and feeling uncomfortable. But I, I would just define vulnerability as essentially feeling a, a difficult feeling. So feeling anxious, feeling depressed, feeling af- afraid, feeling rejected, feeling lonely, inadequate, frustrated, resentful, guilty, ashamed, conflicted, uh, you know, the list goes on. Um, so really just like permitting oneself to actually feel those uncomfortable feelings as opposed to distracting oneself or avoiding those feelings or trying to sort of like muscle through or tell yourself like not to feel that and to just like be really strong and, and, you know, don't be weak, don't feel these sorts of things. So, so that's, um, vulnerability is essentially like allowing ourselves to feel those things. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting um, when you were talking about it. For me, I many moons ago, I did have chronic anxiety. And for me, mm-hmm. I've always been this really strong, independent woman, always just gone ahead and done stuff. And, and all of a sudden, when I actually experienced what that was all about um, and having those panic attacks, that was really being vulnerable because mm-hmm. then I was very dependent on others rather than being independent. And that, to me, I felt very, very extremely vulnerable because – Mm-hmm. I wasn't this strong woman anymore. Right. So it took me sure, a lot imag- of work. Yeah. Well, and I was just saying, I imagine, you know, there was almost another layer of anxiety created around, you know, feeling anxious around potentially having a panic attack. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was in New York when it first had happened. Um, funnily enough, I was on the train and um, I was feeling completely lost a sense of self. And um, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I went into the hospital, I got an ambulance came in and, and collected me because I thought I was actually having a heart attack. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until Very I got common. into the hospital, they actually did all these tests and they said, you've actually had a panic attack. And mm-hmm. I didn't even know what that meant. I'd never heard of it, right. never experienced it. Um, and it wasn't until I got back to Australia, then that, that 12 months back in Australia was horrendous because mm-hmm. there were so many fears attached to having another panic attack in public because I was so embarrassed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just perpetuating because, you know, you, you create, it's, it's interesting. As soon as I'd walk into a shopping center almost, it's almost like it's, it's my body recalls or remembers uh, what yeah. it would feel like to be in public and having a panic attack. And it's almost like I would bring one on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, it goes on alert and you start to feel the anxiety already and you can, you know, then get, feel anxious about feeling that anxiety and it, it just is a vicious cycle. Oh, it is. It is, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Megan, what drives you? What makes you jump out, leap out of bed in the morning? Um... I think probably just a zest for life, really. Um, you know, I'm so fortunate. I I get to um, get paid for some of what I do. <laughs> um, and what I do is just like what I would do even if I didn't get paid for it. And that's so cliche to say, but I'm just like, I feel like I'm the unique small percentage of the population who can really say that. Um, I, I get to work with the most amazing people um, who are just so inspiring and courageous. And I learned so much from my clients and uh, you know, I get to, to write and um, to monetize that and to just like be super creative. So, you know, for me, I went from uh, a couple years ago, I left my pretty comfortable structured routine job at a university. And um, I, kind of took this leap of faith into freelance life. And um, what's so fabulous is that I never know how my days are going to go. You know, every day is different. Um, while I, of course, plan some things, there's a lot that's unplanned and there's a lot of room in there for creativity and inspiration and, you know, just unexpected opportunities like this. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it just I just feel excited for whatever, you know, the next day will bring or the next moment will bring. Mm. Megan, I'm curious, what got you into this uh, uh, field of work? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I was, you know, again, super fortunate um, in the sense that I never was one of those uh, kids who wondered, like, what am I going to do when I grow up? Um, I was lucky that when I was a pretty young child, I was about eight years old, um, you know, through the midst of, of uh, my parents' divorce, I was put into a position where I guess you could have called me like the parentified child. And as a result, I really, um, you know, developed an identity as like the helper 
and the healer or the wounded healer, I guess. And so, you know, I was always in that position of helping and, and, you know, developed uh, a very empathic sort of like attuned way of relating to people as a result. And then as I, uh, well, you know, from that age, actually, I was, I was exhibiting a lot of anxiety and, and depression as a child, but, uh, you know, I then developed eating disorders myself, um, mm-hmm. as I got into high school. And so, it really just perpetuated my interest in psychology because I wanted to figure myself out. You know, I wanted to understand at that time I was dealing with bulimia and which later transformed into anorexia. Um, and I was just dealing with a lot of anger and depression and loneliness and anxiety. And so I was just fascinated by psychology. I was fortunate to take it in high school. And then I just like knew exactly what I wanted to do and just kind of like went straight through trying to both like understand myself. And I think in some ways trying to prevent, um, pain, um, you know, try to, I had this, this, uh, vision that perhaps if I figured it all out, I could, I could create for myself a life without pain, which is of course, um, you know, not possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was sort of what got me into it. And then, you know, as I began to try it on, um, you know, I began volunteering at my suicide, the local suicide line when I was like 19. Um, and, you know, in doing that, I was like, okay, like, this is definitely what I want to do. It, it really fits for me. And so, yeah, it's just, I've never really looked back. It's always been my calling. Yeah, I, thank you for so on, uh, for being so honest and uh, standing in your truth. I always ask the question because most people or individuals or women of inspiration that I speak with have either gone through the experience themselves and hence this is why they can help others um, mm-hmm. heal. So that's why I was curious as to how you got into what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's lots of studies out there that show that, um, you know, people who have been through trauma and whatnot are that much more emotionally attuned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that we have to harness our uh, strengths and try to use them for the better and find the the power in them. And I actually like any, uh, I guess, like, objectively negative thing that has happened to me, I'm like, so grateful for, um, because I think it's just allowed me to get closer to to this uh, calling, as I said, and be able to get be able to understand people more in their moments of suffering. And and I actually see it as a gift. Um, and I think that we can sort of pathologize anything out there. And so some people might think, you know, oh well, it sounds like she's codependent, or you know, doesn't isn't able to have like a sense of meaning in life if she's not being needed. And you know, some of that may be true, but I've accepted that, and I think that that's just kind of my purpose here. Mm. No, it's, uh, I, I can relate to everything you're saying and I think that it's it's once again I always say that you know all of the experiences I've had in my time is a gift but otherwise I wouldn't be the woman I am today and wouldn't be able to help other women going through uh, what I went through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm. Absolutely yeah I think that we have to look back on our experiences like that and try to find the meaning in them because if not I mean we just live with regret and shame and you know question things and so you know if we look hard enough sometimes not in that exact moment of suffering but at least you know afterward we can usually find some sort of ripple that it caused that was for the better or helped strengthen us and you know there's a lot of research out there on post-traumatic growth and resilience and how it comes out of post-traumatic stress or from challenges and so long as we're resourced enough we're supported in um you know getting through that and are able to come to a place of healing then really like those those experiences help shape our our strengths and you know the gifts that we can give the world later on Mm, it's so true and I mean some of us you know some some choose to remain a victim of whatever you know circumstance or anything that's had has had happened in the past um and then others actually embrace it forgive it 
and move forward with it. And there's lots of gurus um, that I've you know invested a lot of time with as well. Most of them have either been you know um, have had t- traumatic upbringing, um, but mm-hmm. to see them mm-hmm. so enlightened and forgiving and uh, owning what had happened as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like mm-hmm. I created that. I created my, you know, I chose that environment. I chose that to happen. It's it's quite um, mm-hmm. empowering to hear. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, not even just focusing on on like choosing or um, having manifested whatever experiences, but how do they survive it? Because clearly mm-hmm. if they're still around, they did something right. And there's some strength and resilience within them and being able to focus on those stories of survival, um, you know, and viewing them as survivors can be that much more empowering, you know, based on the language that they want to use. Um, but look, like, I mean, we all go through trauma, like, you know, trauma is inevitable in life. Uh, it just depends on like what form it takes. And some is much more damaging, you know, and harder to come back from, I suppose, than others. But we have to kind of work with what we've got and the hands yes. we've been dealt. And many of us, I mean, I certainly, you know, I recognize how privileged I am in being white and able-bodied and educated and straight and, you know, grew up in an upper middle class family that even though it had its, you know, psychological challenges, I was never deprived uh, financially or, you know, I always had kind of my like basic needs met in terms of, you know, food and shelter and all that kind of thing. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been incredibly privileged in so many ways. And so I think it's always important to acknowledge that because, you know, it's different for a person who was born into a family of transgenerational trauma and oppression and perhaps as a result doesn't have, you know, the brain development that might be necessary to be able to, like, make these, you know, use these kind of mindset interventions and whatnot and maybe doesn't have the same kind of, like, social connection or support and uh, or, like, financial support or maybe they're oppressed on one or multiple levels in terms of, like, sexual orientation or race or ethnicity or religion or, or, or the list goes on. Right. So, you know, I think like it, it is sometimes easy for us to, to sit here and talk about being empowered in spite of our trauma, but we, we also have a lot of resources that we've been able to draw upon that not everyone does. That's so true. Absolutely. And it, an environment plays a big part too. It really does. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going through your, your, I guess, your upbringing and, and some of the traumas that you experienced, what were some of the best piece of advice that you were ever given going through that? Hmm. Um, I mean, in terms of, of actually being given advice, um, I can't, <laughs> it's tough. I can't actually think of, of a piece of advice that like someone gave me. And probably if I thought about it more, I'd be able to come up with something. But, you know, I think like a really um, meaningful shift for me was when I, I, I think I was about 21 when I read um, Viktor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning. And I remember reading, um, you know, a quote in there that was even the most negative aspects of human existence, such as guilt, suffering and death can be viewed positively, given the right attitude. Um, And another one in there was uh, what is to give light must endure burning. So really being able to like, and and from there, I was really able to look back on some of these these traumas that I had felt a lot of resentment around and um, had worked with many therapists and had a really hard time integrating and, you know, finding meaning in. And, you know, that sort of immersion into existentialism and understanding that like, you know, there is meaning and suffering and there's strength that really comes out of that um, helped me see um, that actually, you know, life is your teacher, which is uh, something I tell myself all the time. And those were actually opportunities for 
resilient, developing resilient resilience and awareness and growth and developing empathy and, um, you know, the skills that I now use to hopefully better the lives of many people. Um, so I think, you know, while it wasn't explicitly said to me by anyone, I, I would say that that was probably the, a really game changing moment for me in being able to, um, shift my perspective and how I viewed, uh, like bad things that happened to me or like objectively bad things that I actually see as, as gifts now. Gosh, I when I also read uh, Victor Frankl, like to me that also helped me shift my mindset. In and I remember reading the part where they can, you know, basically they took his family away, but they can do anything mm-hmm. to me physically, but they can't take my mind away. And how he was able to yeah. shift his mindset internally, and just mm-hmm. no matter what was going on externally and move forward was just oh, phenomenal. Um, and that totally. helped me shift my mindset a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so empowering. And like, I don't know, I've always been really stubborn. Like I remember my soccer teacher when I was like seven or not my soccer teacher, my soccer coach, when I was like seven, what used to say like, this is a dictatorship, not a democracy, because I always wanted to like get in there. And I've always, you know, had a, had a lot of trouble with authority for whatever reason. And that's probably why I've, I've moved into entrepreneurship as opposed to working for anyone else. But, you know, I think that that holding on to that piece, like, yeah, they can, when we've been disempowered in various different ways in our lives growing up, um, you know, or throughout life, like holding on to that reminder that like people can't take away from, they can take everything from me they can imprison me but I I don't have to be a prisoner of my thoughts I get to determine how I choose to relate to the thoughts that I have or how I respond to myself or if I treat myself with compassion or not or you know how I view situations Mm, so true so Megan what's been your greatest lesson through all of this um through through the stuff that happened in my childhood or just like life in general life in general just life in general yep as a whole I mean, you know, the, I think what, what I really preach about now um, is this idea of self-compassion. And that was a huge, huge turning point in my life when I discovered that and learned what it really meant. Um, you know, I think we, we all internalize the voices of our caregivers, uh, whether it's, you know, a parent or a babysitter or a sibling or a coach or a teacher or bullies at school or whatever. We we internalize those voices and we relate to ourselves in that way. And oftentimes we don't even realize that we're incredibly abusive with ourselves. And that is really in line with perfectionism. And that was how I was treating myself for all those years while I was dealing with my eating disorders and, and more severely with the depression and anxiety. And, uh, it wasn't until I was finishing my master's actually, um, and went through a really rough breakup and, you know, began to draw upon some more resources and permit myself to feel these difficult feelings that I'd been avoiding my whole life that I actually realized like, wow, I actually have a choice with how I respond to myself internally. Like I had always just seen it as so automatic before and didn't think that I actually could choose, um, to be kind to myself. And it was the most liberating, you know, awareness that didn't unfold in one moment it unfolded over some time but the most liberating piece of awareness to be like wow I can actually be nice to myself and I don't have to um be constantly beating myself up or hold myself to this unrealistically high standard um and in in shifting the way that I related to myself um I also kind of changed the way that I related to the world and it it just like from there came this ease and kind of trust in the process and this like relaxing into just being rather than constantly striving for the next goal or pressuring myself to like, again, as I said, meet some unrealistic expectations. So I think like when I look at the the greatest lessons that I've, I've learned in life, I mean, that's probably the most impactful one because it not only shifted my relationship to myself, but also to other people and to the world and to any kind of like 
stressful circumstance or negative circumstance, I, it just, it, life is just so much more beautiful when we're kind to ourselves. Mm, and I'm, I'm just curious too to think um, just at what you think about thoughts and inner voices. Like what are the difference between a thought and an inner voice or are they the same? And where do you think they come from? Do you? Because I, I quite often I have thoughts that come into my mind and I, I actually say to mm. myself, where does this come from? Like yeah. this is so not me and some, it's so random and so so not me. Mm hmm. Sure. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, ultimately, they are all thoughts, right? Like everything that's sort of happening that we're aware of, I suppose, um, that's in like a sentence form is a thought, um, you know, the sensation that we feel in our body that we would associate with emotion is a feeling, or at least that's how I differentiate between the two. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe it would be helpful to work with an example, like, if, if are there any you'd be willing to share that you would have that response to being like, oh, this isn't me? Um. Oh, gosh, from the top of my head, one of my thoughts might be, oh, they, I, I can't think one from the top of my head, but they just, I know for me, like, I don't believe every single uh, thought that comes into my mind. I think that sometimes the thinking, it comes from maybe, um, you know, uh, you know, anything to do with my environment, maybe a conversation I had a couple of days ago. Um, you know, to me, I don't believe all my thoughts. Absolutely not. Oh, absolutely. No, we, we shouldn't believe all of our thoughts. I mean, our thoughts are, like you said, I mean, we, we can't view situations objectively. It's impossible. We are um, products of many, many years of experience and biases and media and, you know, triggering relationships and sometimes abusive or traumatic relationships. And so, you know, I think it's, I mean, emotional and um, cognitive awareness are hugely important in being able to uh, move toward a healthier place of relating to ourselves. But I would say that like for anyone, it's important to, to when you become aware of your thought, even say I'm having the thought that. So if we go back to like the body talk examples or the negative body image, I mean, for a lot of, of women in particular, but men too, you know, we might look in the mirror and think like, I'm ugly or I'm not good enough or I shouldn't go out in public today or I look fat or like I'm disgusting or something like very, very harsh and critical that we would never say to a friend or a loved one or even someone we don't like. Um, and so even being able to sort of stop in that moment and say like, oh, I'm having the thought that I'm not good enough to go out in public today or that I'm disgusting. I'm having that thought, right? So recognizing that's a thought, it's not a truth, right? Because we we tend to perceive our thoughts as objective truths and they're not. They're they're sort of opinions or, you know, products of, as we said, all these, these things that we mentioned before. And I'm a big believer that reality is subjective. There's no objective truths out there. And that allows us to be a lot more flexible in the way that we see the world and gives us a lot of freedom to be able to change the way that we relate to the, we relate to the world and relate to ourselves. So, if, um, you know, in terms of like the critical inner voice versus a thought, I mean, there, there's some conflation there. Like, I don't think there's, we really differentiate, but you know, the thought, oh, I'm, I'm ugly and fat or something like that. I mean, that's, that's the critical inner voice for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. sure. It's still, it's still your thought. And what I encourage clients to do is to acknowledge like, okay, like, not to try to push this critical inner voice away or be, or try to have an argument with it or try to have this like, I don't know, like this debate where one side wins out and one side doesn't, because in my experience, both personally and professionally, that's not super effective. Um, but more so to look and see like, okay, like how, how might this thought have served me in the past, you know, and like, where did it come from? And, um, you know, maybe there was a time in life when I was being bullied and people were telling me that, that I was fat and ugly. Yeah. And me telling myself that before I left the house 
it gave me some armor because you know what? It's a lot easier for me to cope with my own self-criticism than the criticism from other people. And if I tell myself that first, then I'm protecting myself. Or maybe, you know, it prevented me from being vulnerable or from exposing myself to certain relationships in which I might have been um, abused. I mean, for a person who, let's say, has a history of, of sexual assault or um, that type of trauma, perhaps they want to tell themselves that they're just like disgusting and unlovable and undesirable so they don't make themselves vulnerable to um, the trauma that they've been through, you know, again. And so, you know, we could go on about this forever, hypothesizing the different uh, adaptive um, properties of a critical inner voice. But for anyone who has a critical inner voice, and we all do to a certain extent, um, it I, I would, you know, put money on it that it in some way has been helpful for them, whether it's been protective, whether it's been motivating, um, you know, whatever the the reason was. Um, I think it's it's helpful for people to once they acknowledge that inner voice, be like, okay, like how has this been helpful for me? Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Critical Inner Voice, for having been there for me. You know, I really appreciate everything you tried to do for me, and I know you're coming from a good place. However, you're not serving me anymore. You know, the, I, I'm realizing now that this um, incessant criticism that I live with or self-judgment is preventing me from connecting to people. It's preventing me from being in the current moment. It's preventing me from enjoying life. It's undermining my sense of self or um, my power, um, you know, it's subordinating me in positions or, you know, situations in which, you know, I I don't deserve to be subordinated. Um, so, you know, I think that it it's a very individual thing. I mean, it's not something we can totally generalize for all of the listeners, but I would just encourage whoever's listening, if they are aware of that critical inner voice, to ask themselves, like, how has it been helpful? How is it not helpful anymore now? And, you know, can you start to become aware of that and then replace that thought um, or, you know, practice responding in a more self-compassionate way, which is kind of like what you would say to a friend or a loved one. And look, in the beginning, it's very hard. It's like learning a new language. Um, you know, for anyone who's tried to learn a new language, it's something where you don't default to that, right? You default to your native language. And when you start practicing these sentences in another language, it feels foreign. It's frustrating. It takes extra brain power. Um, it feels kind of like it, it, it's like a brand new pair of shoes you haven't broken in yet. Like it just doesn't feel comfortable. But the more you practice and the more you just automatically start to become aware of when you're beating yourself up and replacing it with a kinder thought, um, then you actually start to default more to self-compassion. And I can say that not only from my own personal experience, from the experience of working with many, many clients who have adapted this way of thinking and a way of relating to themselves. And it's incredibly life-changing to do so. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. but <laughs> oh, it does. And I, I absolutely agree with it. And that's how I work with any form of emotion, critic, uh, inner critic, anything like that. I think you don't ignore it. You don't repress it. Um, you actually no. dance with it. I always say dance with it. Find out what yeah. it's, you know, every time it comes up, it comes up for a reason. Uh, yeah. and, and it's for you to understand, like you said, where it comes from. Uh, and if it doesn't serve you uh, um, any longer, then how could you reframe it? Um, and use it to sometimes you can use it to your advantage to help you move mm -hmm. forward you know some sometimes you can help you help you catapult you forward to doing that very thing yeah. you want to do or that very thing that you're scared of doing exactly and and you know don't judge yourself for being judgmental to yourself you know like just be curious about it use it as an opportunity to practice mindfulness and to practice this sort of like observational curiosity where you're getting to know yourself better and better because ultimately that's what we're all trying to do is just to get to know ourselves more and more and the better we know ourselves um 
you know, the more apt we are at relating to life's challenges as they come. So, you know, being able to just respond with curiosity and be like, oh, isn't isn't that interesting? I mean, for me, it's very rare that my critical inner voice comes around anymore, to be honest, which is, is so awesome and kind of scary in a way sometimes. But um, it does still come around here and there. And when it does it's an opportunity. It's like, oh, wow. And I kind of respond to it like, isn't that cute? I just beat myself up. You know, I just judge myself for, you know, X, Y, or Z or said something really harsh and critical to myself. Like, you know, what was happening there? What was the impetus for that? Why was there that sort of like reversion to this old coping mechanism? Um, you know, is there a different way that I can respond to myself? Like, is it, can I, how do I sort of advance to the next level of self-compassion where, you know, I might tackle this issue now? Um, and so it's, you know, these, these moments are opportunities to just get to know ourselves and the way that we relate to ourselves and just practice a more serving, more compassionate way of responding to ourselves. And I should say too, for anyone listening, because I think a lot of people get um, compassion um, mixed up with like pity or um, this like permissive um, way of relating to oneself. Compassion is not about um, just letting anything fly. It's, it's about balancing care and respect and being kind to ourselves and understanding and empathic and tolerant and patient, but also having this real like growth mindset and holding ourselves accountable and, you know, treating ourselves like a really good coach would treat us, um, where they still have expectations and expect you to show up for practice and expect you to, you know, go for those long runs in the pouring rain when you don't want to at 5am in the morning or whatever. Um, but also, you know, being really understanding when you're sick or when you have an injury or when you, you know, make a mistake or miss a shot that you should have gotten, you know, um, being able to really explore that and make room for errors and imperfections and be sort of unconditionally loving in spite of or because of our, our flaws that we have. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm. I've got goosebumps. I totally agree with everything you've just said. I always look at things as opportunities, and I, I, I really believe it's how you respond or react to them makes a big mm-hmm. difference whether you can move forward or get stuck with it. Totally. Well, and because you know what, I mean, shame is paralyzing and shame keeps us in this place of ignorance, really, because what happens is when we beat ourselves up, when we respond to any kind of like transgression or error or imperfection by beating ourselves up, we create shame and shame is an incredibly difficult emotion to sit with. And look, it's evolutionarily adaptive, like every other emotion out there. And in some cases, it's important for us to feel shame. You know, like if we, I don't know, like leave the house without any clothes on, you know, like we're probably going to feel shame and shame is telling us like, oh, that's like not a socially acceptable behavior in this society that we live in. And if you leave the house without clothes on, you're probably not going to make friends or connect to people. Right. So like there are some instances where we want to feel shame because it's a message that says, look, like whatever you're doing right now is probably going to prevent you from connecting to others, which humans deeply all we want is to connect and belong. But unfortunately, we live in a society where we shame ourselves or we are shamed um, when we shouldn't be. And with our critical inner voice, we create this overwhelming sense of shame that we can't sit with. And as a result, we can't reflect upon or unpack whatever just happened and learn what to do next time so that we don't replicate that error. So that's why we see people who are incredibly hard on themselves repeating the same patterns over and over and over again. And why it doesn't work with like, you know, obesity or smoking or alcoholism or any other kind of like substance abuse or cheating or gambling. It doesn't work to shame people because they can't sit with those incredibly distressful, uncomfortable feelings. And so they just go to distract themselves from those feelings by using the exact means of distraction or abuse or, um, you know, 
whatever it is that they're, we're trying to change, they're just going to go back to that as our coping mechanism. So that's why when we can respond self-compassionately with understanding and empathy and, you know, space for imperfection, we can actually unpack and be like, okay, what just happened here? What didn't go as planned? What do you want to change for next time? Look, you're a human being. You make mistakes like everybody else. We're all imperfect. We're all in this together. Um, yeah, you don't want to keep repeating the same thing and you feel really guilty about it. And that guilt is a healthy feeling. It shows that you are, you know, you have morals and integrity and, you know, you don't want to hurt people or you don't want to hurt yourself or whatever. Um, you know, however, we all make mistakes and there's no script for life. And we're all kind of just like fumbling through this messy thing together. There's no dress rehearsal. And, uh, so, you know, what can you do to change next time and how, what do you need to be able to get through that. And that's like a much more self-compassionate way of relating to yourself in which you actually can make change as opposed to beating yourself up and telling yourself you're pathetic or you're a failure or you're never, you're not good enough. Nobody will ever love you. You're not worthy. You're this, you're that. Well, Megan, you have a wealth of knowledge. Who's been your greatest influence? Um, you know, I think at least in the past five to six years, I would say Pema Chodron, who's a, um, a Buddhist monk. Um, and she wrote a book called When Things Fell Apart, which was a, a book that a friend gave to me when I was in the midst of the really bad breakup that kind of like broke me open and helped me learn how to relate to the world in a different way. And, you know, I really um, began to devour all of her literature and the people who have influenced her work um, and and just began to incorporate Buddhist philosophy into my life. And so, you know, probably alongside Viktor Frankl, as I mentioned, you know, he was huge as well. But I would say she has been incredibly um, influential for me because she really makes Buddhist philosophy tangible, digestible, like relatable for those of us who aren't living in a monastery, <laughs> you know, full time. And, uh, you know, being able to bring that philosophy into my life has just completely shifted like the way that I relate to everything and it has allowed for me to just kind of like enjoy each day, you know, and even the tough ones. Cause like, I certainly still struggle with, you know, anxiety and depression here and there and they bubble up and I've kind of accepted that I think that might just be, um, that might be par for the course with being like the deeply empathic, um, sort of introspective person that I am, um, and perhaps past traumas as well that I'm still healing from. And so, you know, her work, um, and her messages have just like, been so um healing and transformative and reassuring for me so I'd, I'd say her any everybody should check her out oh, thank you for that I'll check her out definitely I've not heard of her um we always ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand what would be that one word for you I mean it's 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 simple but I would just say real I mean I um you know I sort of fell into this like personal branding thing very organically. And I still, I'm only finally now being like, I guess I have a brand. <laughs> um, you know, I started a blog in 2012 and had just begun noticing themes in my clients and was thinking like, why does no one talk about this? Everyone feels the same stuff. Everyone's going dealing with the same issues. And yet like they're so, they feel so alone. And so I began to write about it and um, the writing, you know, it received really, the reception was was um, more than I, I thought it would be. And it really began to resonate with people. And I got a lot of feedback and a lot of emails. And from there, um, you know, had certain publications reach out to me and then have since like written for many different publications. Um, and, you know, the consistent feedback that I get from people is what they really admire or value in, in me is just my like realness or authenticity. And I, I mean, I think, in, in some ways, like, I just don't really know any other way. I mean, I, I guess I admire people who are able to um, 
act <laughs> more or maybe I don't, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like that's sort of the, I, I, rather than trying to pretend that I'm this like shrink who has it all together and I know all the answers and, you know, I'm the picture of mental health, like, gosh, no, I mean, I, I have my, my struggles as well still, and I'm continually working on them and working on myself and, uh, trying to, um, use them or use myself as kind of like the N1 research project for how I can help more people. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the feedback that I get from a lot of people is just that they really appreciate my, um, candor and like vulnerability and, and authenticity and realness. That's what I love about you, Megan. It's so true. It's We all still go through whatever we go through, but it's whether we actually admit to it and speak about it, and you do that very well. And it's through oh, your writing you. as well, you do lots of writing. So, Megan, as we wrap up the show, we always ask our woman of inspiration to leave our listeners with three golden nuggets. So what would be three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today? Sure. Um well, let's see. I mean, the first one I would say is um, start to become aware of your emotions or your feelings. Um, and I know that that it doesn't seem like a, a really strong intervention upon first glance, but it is so transformative um, and life-changing when we can start to actually pay attention to what we're feeling emotionally. Um, we live in a society where we're taught to suppress and numb and avoid. And I think the happiness movement out there is so destructive because it tells people that, you know, they should be happy all the time and they should choose happy. And that's just not realistic. You know, even those of us who don't struggle with mental illness, um, are going to experience grief in life because that is inevitable. Like we lose things in life or people in life that we care about and transition happens. And that is very challenging. And it is, it is not only unrealistic, it's impossible to expect that you're not going to feel some form of uncomfortable feelings in those moments. And what we do when we judge ourselves for feeling uncomfortable feelings and say that we should just like, you know, see it as a positive thing or find the positive or choose happy or perspective or gratitude or whatever, all these kinds of like cliches that are out there right now. Um, we create what we call secondary feelings or secondary emotions where we create another layer of feelings around our primary feelings. So um, we might be feeling grief in response to the loss of someone or something. And that's a very healthy, normal, adaptive feeling that shows how much we cared about it. Um, and then as a result of experiencing that grief for sadness or whatever, we then judge ourselves and say, you know, suck it up. Like they weren't good for you anyway, or it's, it's better off, you know, they're in a better place now, or, you know, find the positive in this loss. And then we um, feel this like anxiety or shame around having felt this like primary feeling. And we can do that with any feeling that we experience. So, um, you know, when we actually permit ourselves to feel whatever we're feeling, we give ourselves an opportunity to look inside and learn from it and hear the messages that it's telling us. Because really, like our emotions are what guide us. They're our compass that guide us to sort of our purpose and the way that we can connect to life and to people and what make us human and all of that. And in turning ourselves off from our feelings and our emotional experience, we now have this like pandemic of people who are very, very unhappy um, and they're not living their purpose or their truth and they don't know why and they can't figure out what makes them happy because they've just turned themselves off from their bodies and they're just living in their heads. So, I mean, the first piece, as I would say, as, or as I said, is just really um, try to become aware of those feelings. Um, the second piece I would say is, you know, delve into self-compassion and the literature around that because it is so, so life-changing. Um, it's, uh, the self-compassion basically is three things. Uh, it's mindfulness, which, you know, 
people have probably heard of at some point, but that's basically like non-judgmental awareness of our experience, of our thoughts, of our feelings, of our um, sensations, the world around us. So doing, you know, accepting and paying attention to that current moment without judgment, uh, that's essentially mindfulness. Um, the second piece is self-kindness, kind of what we talked about before, treating yourself like you would a friend or loved one or like your eight-year-old self. And then the third piece of self-compassion is this idea that we're all in this together, that like suffering or pain, at least in, in life is universal. And uh, it's just part of life. And unfortunately, the media has really sold to us this idea that life is not filled with pain and that it should look a certain way. And we grew up watching Disney and you know, rom-coms and reading fairy tales and things and being told that like, we just have to get to this certain point and then everything will be okay. And we should always be kind of like looking toward the next goal and, you know, get your degree and your, you know, get married and have kids and get your house and your white pickup fence and your boat and all that kind of stuff. And like life will be good and pain-free and that's just not the case. So once we kind of accept that pain and, and challenge and uncomfortable feelings are an inevitable part of life, then we can kind of change the way that we relate, we relate to those difficult feelings. Um, and we feel less alone in experiencing them and we experience less shame in experiencing them because we remember like, oh yeah, this is this is normal and this is healthy and this doesn't mean I'm broken and this doesn't mean I'm not coping right. So um, yeah, the mindfulness, self-kindness and this kind of like in this together mindset are all of what make up self-compassion. And for anyone listening who wants to learn more about that, I mean, please like read my work, of course, but uh, Kristen Neff, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-E-F-F, um, she is like a real guru in that area and she has a fabulous book called Self-Compassion. Um, I think it's the subtitle is changing the way you, re you relate to yourself or something like that. Um, so I would say that's the, that's the second piece. Um, so yeah, the emotional awareness, the self-compassion stuff. Um, and in terms of the third nugget, um, hmm. I mean, it, it probably falls into the, the piece that I just mentioned, but I think it probably deserves to be a point of its own is just like be skeptical of, of stories out there. Um, you know, a lot of the shame that we feel is around believing that we're not living this like traditional narrative that we should be living. And look, like these are socially constructed narratives, like even this, even like marriage and like, I mean, you know, having kids like procreating is evolutionary, but we're reaching a point in our society where we don't necessarily have to all do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of these like pressures out there uh, that people feel that are really just a result of social constructs. And depending on what your beliefs are, um, you know, mine, as I said, um, I, I am a very spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And I kind of believe in our like universal connectedness and um, believe in a real subjective reality. And in that we can choose the narrative that we want to live and we get to determine whether or not that's wrought with shame. And when we compare the narrative that we're living to this like dominant narrative out there that we think we should be living and look at that disparity and believe that we're like failing in some way, that's where we end up feeling not good enough where we feel like we've failed. So be really skeptical of those stories because none of those, a lot of those stories aren't true. They are fairy tales. That's exactly what they are. And when you look on social media and you see everybody posting their, their highlight reels, you know, or their resumes for life, as I like to call them, um, those aren't real either. Those are just, again, highlights and everyone out there is struggling with something in some way. And, um, when we can start to see life in, it's like, more raw, messier form and permit ourselves to kind of fumble along and not necessarily get to this place of like resolution or knowing because really that never comes, you know, we're always going to be thrown curveballs. Um, and we can kind of permit ourselves to just kind of be in the mess, um, rather than like live this story that 
isn't real anyway, like, you know, live this unrealistic fairy tale or meet that, um, that really sets us up for disappointment and feeling shame and failure and all that anyway, then there's this real liberation that happens and this real connectedness to all of the other people out there, um, who, well, all humans who also are dealing with the same feelings of like, you know, struggling with feeling imperfect or like they're not good enough or they haven't gotten it right or they're not doing it right. Um, you know, I, I very recently wrote an article it was titled, I'm, I'm 30, single and happy. And truthfully, that scares me. And it was basically about my conflict with being very happy for the most part, you know, like I'm a really content individual, despite my struggles with, with, you know, depression, anxiety and whatnot. Um, overall, I'm, I'm really happy and I wouldn't change a thing. And, uh, you know, I, I struggle with that because I'm conflicted about whether or not I, I want to find a partner or, you know, have this sort of like traditional life. And that can be a lonely place sometimes because when we look around, we feel like that traditional narrative is still really um, dominant and, you know, that's sort of the direction everyone's going. And this article had the most amazing reception. I am still getting like 20 to 30 emails a day from people who said like, oh my God, you have no idea how much this article resonated with me. It was like you were in my head. And it's like when we start to talk more about the less dominant narratives and we start to like put words to our experiences that might not fit into um, the social constructs that we're used to, it's like this beautiful thing happens and everyone comes out of the the wings and they're like, oh my gosh, me too. And we feel so much less alone in our, in our struggles. So I would encourage people to not only be skeptical as to whether or not they're the only ones who are, are, you know, doing it differently or having a different experience, but also put words to that, you know, and, and reach out and look for forums on the internet and look for, you know, support groups and verbalize it with, you know, your therapist or your friends or whatever. And you, you may be surprised, like, you're, you're not as fucked up as you think you are. Like none of us are, we're all, we all think we're broken and we all think we're doing it wrong, but everyone is dealing with the same kinds of like fears and um, insecurities and, and challenges and whatnot. And that's what makes us human. Oh, Megan, I could listen to you all day long and I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love you. How can our listeners find out more about you and where can they find you? Yeah, of course. I would I'd love for people to reach out if they found any of this resonant. Um, so meganbruno.com is my website and that sort of has all my um, writing and whatnot. I post whatever's my whatever my latest stuff is there, writing podcasts, that kind of stuff. So um, that's M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U.com. But they can also find me on uh, Twitter. I'm Megan Bruno there. Uh, Instagram there. I'm Megan J. Bruno. So M-E-G-A-N-J. B-R-U-N-E-A-U. Um, and you can find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page you can follow where I post everything. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. Um, my my personal blog that I did have for those many years that I've now kind of retired, um, but it's still all out there and there's lots of writing there, is OneShrinksPerspective.com. So O-N-E-S-H-R-I-N-K-S and then P-E-R-S-P. Um, S-E-C-T-I-V-E. I'm like, how do you spell perspective? Um, so yeah, one drinks perspective.com. So, but also, you know, email me megan.bruno at gmail.com, you know, with any questions or reflections or anything like that. Um, you know, I also work with clients one-on-one and, you know, I just love hearing from people because again, it's just a reminder how, um, important this work is and, and how, you know, again, we are all in this together and we are all dealing with these same kinds of challenges. Oh, Megan, I just adore you. I want to give you a big Ethernet hug. Oh, Ether hug, oh, I should say, through the internet. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm sure our listeners are absolutely going to adore this uh, um, conversation, two of us, but it really just your information, your knowledge, it's just been amazing. So thank you so, so much for your time and energy. 
Oh, you're so welcome, Catherine. It was such a joy to be on here. Thank you I so can't much. Wait to hear all of it. Okay, bye bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. That brings us to the end of the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email to jennifer at iamwomanproject.com.au or Twitter at iamwomanproject and we will get right back to you. If you were listening to this podcast on iTunes, please make sure you leave a review or rating about the show. We would love to hear your thoughts. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please take care.